Staying Alive in Paragliding, a podcast series with your host, Steph Juncker from Cape Town, South Africa, the owner of Parapax Tandem Paragliding and a competition pilot of 23 years. Real podcasts for real pilots to learn from, to laugh at, and to enjoy the funny and crazy stories that go with it. I didn't quite get where he's sitting right now, but the man moves a lot. He's all over the place. You wouldn't think that a chartered accountant, which is what he does professionally, is why the man is always moving. Because chartered accountants in general, usually people who are bound to an office because that's what they have to do. They have to stare at papers and computer screens and do the accounting of different companies. But the great Alec Booth, who is living in East London, just outside East London, and he specifically, with a smile on his face, told me that he lives just outside airspace so that he has a bit of freedom because he literally can walk outside of his house and pull out a variety of flying toys um, from paragliding to helicopters and aeroplanes. And he is going to tell us today why we should fly what we fly and what's the great thing to fly. And he's also going to tell us a beautiful story about how at the age of 11 years old, introduce him to this thing called flight, that he was completely besotted. In 1999, he met Tristan Burrell, who unfortunately isn't with us anymore. And I think we can dedicate this podcast to the great Tristan Burrell for his wonderful input with uh, paragliding in South Africa. He tells us how he started to paraglide and then moved on to all sorts of great flying things. Alec, awesome having you on the podcast. How are you doing today, mate? All good, man. Thanks. Thanks, Dave. So you're going to tell us how your parents had absolutely no money, but you decided that you are going to become a pilot when you were a young man. You dreamt of that. Please fire away with that great story that you gave me the skeleton of a few minutes ago. Uh, when I was around 11, I was very privileged to uh, meet uh, my folks' friends that and uh, this particular chap had his own uh, aerobatic plane and for a youngster at 11 years old to be able to go up with this two-seater. I don't even recall what type of plane it was, to be honest, but um, that was something that blew my mind at the age of 11 and it was something I couldn't get rid of. It, it was something that was ingrained in my blood, um, this idea of wanting to fly. And that's all I could think about as a youngster. I mean, even to the point where I wasn't even interested in any girls, I just wanted to fly. That's what was on my mind every day. I would look and think of how, whatever way I could, whatever way there was to try and get into flying one day. And that led to sort of a discussion with my parents or my dad in particular, sort of closer to the end of my school career and uh, the question my dad asked me is what do I, what do I want to do and I said dad obviously it's obvious I want to fly and this was post 94 with massive challenges regarding getting into obviously the air, airlines or the, the 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 you know the the safe and so um, my dad just basically said to me why don't you just study something that you can pay for your own flying it'll make it a lot simpler and uh, I said to my dad, well, dad, tell me what I must do. Tell me what I must study so I can pay for my own flying. And he suggested he, him being, him, himself being an accountant, said, said to me, become a CA and you'll never regret it. You'll be able to fly and, and fly whatever you want. And, and that's exactly what I did. I, I, the quickest way possible became a chartered accountant. In fact, I didn't even go to university. I did all my studies through UNISA. I started working immediately as I, I did my articles uh, straight after school. And the minute I had enough money, 
we were living in the in the Hillcrest area in Durban at that stage, and uh, Tristan Beryl had a, a little uh, paragliding shop in the, the heritage market in Hillcrest, and I, I, I popped in there the one day because I'd seen this and I, it had blown my mind a few times, and I met Tristan, and yeah, the rest was history. I, I started paragliding. I bought myself a wing. I actually bought Tristan's old wing. It was I still remember it was a Red Matrix Fire Blade. I think the the, the brand was called. Uh, I took up paragliding uh, at that stage. Uh, I think you quickly became uh, uh, used to the term called para waiting because it, it was a sort of game where you would go to the hill weekend after weekend, and there would be many times where we would just sit and watch the professionals fly, but it was too too strong or whatever for you as a student to to get in the air. But anyway, that didn't matter. It wasn't long, a couple of months, and I had my paragliding license, and I on my way, and it it, it was like a dream come true. So that's that's really where where flying started for me, Steph. It, it was a passion that that I, I had grown as a young child, and uh, it became a reality. Oh, wonderful! I mean, it's so so nice, and uh, you're not the first, of course, of the of the let's say completely indoctrinated types who is so into flying because of something that they saw or experienced as a youngster. And that's exactly your story, you know. Uh, you f- said you finished school in 1997. You said that in 1999, you uh, went to Tristan School, Blue Sky, which we all remember. Tristan uh, had a terrible, unfortunate accident, dying in a, a microlight accident in power lines. We uh, all knew him as a guy who was very, very passionate and very uh, safety conscious, uh, which was um, strangely ironic uh, in this uh, in this situation. And then tell us about uh, the powered a paragliding because that was very quickly what you got into and then you got out of that for a reason tell us about that before the power paragliding i, I still remember i mean i wanted to progress towards getting my tandem license something i would talk to tristan regularly about and he just said don't worry about that just keep flying it's a long road just keep flying that's what i did but yeah there, there was a, a you know it was very new the powered paragliding i decided to buy myself a, a i think it was called a solo 210 a very very heavy motor um, but anyway, um, I was young and strong, so it wasn't a problem. But I uh, had a little incident flying um, in Belito where we were allowed to fly. Uh, the prop came flying off. Maybe it was a, a lack of checking maintenance from our side. Whatever it was, it, it, it gave a bit of a fear, and I kind of put the, the motor away for a while. But then, obviously, it wasn't too long. It was, I think it was literally a couple of weeks after that that Tristan had this unfortunate accident. And that was a big blow to many people. And as you said, Steph, it, it was very, very disturbing because we knew Tristan as the safest pilot that probably ever lived. Um, and there were so many times where, where others would take chances and, and, and Tristan would stand back and say, he's not prepared to take those chances. And he, I think up until that day, he was completely accident-free. He never had any incidents. And um, so this was a blow to many people. So, so much a blow to me that I actually gave up paragliding for a, for a long time at that point in time, um, and just uh, I was working at the time for ESA Homelands, and and just kind of w- started focusing on my work a bit more and and put the the paragliding uh, and the flying idea sort of to the side. But yeah, that didn't last very long because as you know, when flying is in your blood, it's something that you just can't get rid of. It's just something that that you almost start getting withdrawal symptoms from if you don't get in the air. And I don't believe it was more than about a year or a year and a half later where I was 
driving back home from work, I was working in the Lucia area and, and I was living in, in Durban itself. And uh, I was about to go past the, the Virginia turnoff there on the M4 going towards Durban. And I stopped and I thought, no, let me go. Let me go and see this airport. And right there, there I saw a youngster, young, young individual jumping into a little 22, uh, two-seater uh, Robinson 22. I watched the person start up the helicopter and I just, oh, it blew my mind. Absolutely blew my mind. And it wasn't probably a day or two later I'd signed up to do the, the helicopter license. And, and, and then it just progressed from there. I was very fortunate. I met a, a, a chap that, that owned a little a 44 a, a helicopter, a Robinson 44. And I, uh, being an accountant, I did some accounting work for him in lieu of uh, some hours on the, the helicopter. I didn't exchange it at the full rate. I exchanged it at the fuel rate. So I was extremely fortunate. I think I did about 300 hours of flying on that on that 44. I've got um, absolute amazing memories flying on days after it's just snowed, landing in, you know very close to the Lesotho Mountains in the snow. Beautiful, beautiful times that I've had. Um, so that that's really where 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 flying, uh, you know, those type of machines got into my blood. Uh, paragliding was sort of on the side now, and and it, and the new new flying thing was was uh, was helicopters, and it was really something that uh, grew grew on me, and really brings me to actually a bit of a, a incident that took place, uh, a very very scary moment, in fact, and that is um, one thing that I would warn about is, uh, you know, the first couple of hours of, after getting your pilot's license and, and you speak to anyone that, that gets a PPL or, or knows about it, it's it's that, and you know, generally you need about 60 or 70 hours or 50 to 60 hours. And that period from getting your license to to getting, to building up to about, say, call it 300 or 500 hours is a very, very dangerous time. You think you know it all. You think you're indestructible. And it just so happened that I had, two friends that uh, wanted to impress and obviously being a helicopter pilot you think you can fly anywhere and as low as possible and we were flying along the river uh, in the Umgani River area and the last minute uh, we were flying low along the river and I knew that area very very well but the lot it was I don't think if a, a split second later if I didn't see the power line it, we would have been into the power line and they say we call those power lines widow makers because they are so dangerous. They're probably the cause of about 80% of the the, the the helicopter accidents in the world are because of power lines. And um, so that was a very, very near. It, it made me go home that night and realize that something's got to change. I've got to, if, if this wants, if I want a career in flying, well, not a career in flying, but if I want a, a successful life of enjoyment in flying, I have to change. And 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 that that night I, I really I really went back and I, I rethought about things and and I've, to to be honest since that day I've never really had a close call like that but that was a very very close call. Um, in in fact it was so close that my friends that were in the helicopter didn't even know what was going on. I had just ducked and I didn't even have time to go over the power lines. I had to duck under the power lines. That's how close I was. I was to wow. them. So it was a, a very scary moment. But anyway, that that just sums up my 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 the sort of the my career or my in, you know the beginning of my career in in helicopters. Look, it wasn't too long after after that. I think I built up to about three hundred hours. I sort of parted ways with the chap that owned the helicopter, sold the helicopter. I remember now what had happened, and um, it was also then when I um, 
I also felt that helicopters was very limiting in that you it's expensive to fly and, and you can't go very far. And uh, being often going to the airport, uh, I, I, I came across a, I think it was in a magazine or can't remember exactly, I saw this little um, Jabiru four-seater, uh, it was called a J400, it's uh, Jabiru is obviously Australian uh, little aircraft with an Australian engine called a Jabiru motor. And it's a, it's a little home, not, I wouldn't say it's a home built, they do manufacture them in Australia, but in South Africa, it's, a, it's a exper an experimental craft, so it's very cheap to run. Um, it uses roughly 20 to 25 liters of, of avgas, or, or you could use petrol. So light to run, beautiful aircraft, you can go quite fast in terms of um, small aircraft. I think it would do uh, quite comfortably, it would do 100 knots quite comfortably, which is quite good for, for a small aircraft like that. I think it could go up to 110 knots. And so I bought this little plane and used that to get my fixed wing license. Obviously, helicopters sort of left it on the side for a while. Uh, now and then, we just pay for a couple of hours just to keep the license going. And this plane is really what that opened up huge doors because uh, it would now be easy to get into the plane and fly all the way to Villanculos or to Cape Town or to Durban or wherever. Most of my flying was along the coast. I, I love flying along the, the beautiful our beautiful coastline. I know that our coastline extremely well especially towards Port Elizabeth. This was probably roughly 2007, late 2007, me and two mates decided to take that little plane of mine and fly to Cape Town and go and explore Cape Town again. I had done it previously. And we got as far as Port Elizabeth and the weather turned extremely bad. We landed at Port Elizabeth and um, I'd been chatting on Facebook to a, a, a young lady, just, just friends, my family knew her family and I needed a place to stay. She lived in Port Elizabeth. I, I, I phoned her up and uh, she uh, was happy for us to come and stay there the night. One night turned into two or three nights. And yeah, I eventually married this this, this, this beautiful girl. Her name is Roxanne. And um, what had actually happened is I was still working in, in Durban and her, she was living in Port Elizabeth. And I decided every weekend to, to go and visit her. And I had the, the means with this beautiful little plane. It would take me roughly four hours to fly to, to Port Elizabeth. If I had, uh, if, if, if the wind was in my favor, I could fly all the way there. If it wasn't, I had enough fuel and two drums in the back seat and I would land it on the top of Port St. John's, quickly put in the fuel and then carry on. And that was pretty much every weekend from the time that that uh, I, I met this girl all the way, all the, all the, all, probably six, seven months until we actually got married. Um, I would go and visit her almost every weekend uh, with this, this plane. And yeah, there were some scary moments because when a young man's determined to see his girl, uh, eventually you don't even check the weather anymore. You just fly. Um, right. Tell us about it. <laughs> Tell us about the bad weather stories. Yeah, there, there was one particular, uh, uh, it was, I, I couldn't get off work early, so it was much late in the afternoon, I could get off. In fact, I think I only left at about 9 or 10 o'clock in the evening. I had a night rating by this time, and uh, this plane was night rated. Uh, it's interesting because generally um, experimental aircraft are not night rated, but I went through a long process with the CAA to get this little plane night rated. I had to do a whole bunch of things and paperwork. Eventually, I got this plane night rated because I really love flying at night. And um, the weather was really, really bad. And I got to, and I, if you ever fly at night, uh, if, even in a Boeing, if you get over Port Edward, then obviously towards Port Elizabeth, you, 
you uh, have the Transkai, where before Port Edward, you have a lot of houses and stuff that are on the beach with lights on. But after Port Edward, um, there's just nothing. There's no houses. It's just dead. The next house you'll see is Kaimauf or lights that you'll see at night. And so I, this was about 9 o'clock, 10. It was pouring with rain. I couldn't see anything. And I just decided to turn back to Margate, which wasn't too far from there. And I got to Margate. Obviously, the lights, the, the runway lights went on. So you, you, you can't land with a plane if there are no runway lights. So I quickly, while busy trying to fly, keeping the plane stable, quickly looked on my phone, found the sequence to get the runway lights on, landed. I think it was now about 11 o'clock at night, landed on the runway. I actually just landed and stayed on the runway, just waited there, slept there for a while. It was about two or three hours later. I remember around three o'clock in the morning, the weather had subsided, took off again and made my way all the way to, to Port Elizabeth. So yeah, this was probably the worst um, occasion of, of really bad weather. But there were many days where the weather was, you know, very bad in terms of visibility. And But I've always felt safe along the coast. I would never, never fly inland you know, with bad visibility, at least along the coast, if you stay over the white water, you, you know, there's no obstacles in the, in, in, you know, in your way. But that's how I met this, this, this uh, girl. And uh, we got married about a year later. It was roughly about September 2008. And, and obviously, she moved with me to Durban. And uh, yeah, that's how it happened. Absolutely great story. Uh, I really love that. And now you, you two have produced uh, very nicely spread out nine, seven and five year old boys, which I'm sure are quite a handful. And you were telling me with a sparkle in your eyes a few minutes ago, how absolutely great it is to be able to share the joy of flying with your boys. Um, tell us about their enthusiasm. How do they feel? Tell us more about you, your boys and flying. Yeah, they, they absolutely love flying. Um, I suppose I would have to just carry on a little bit because um, what had happened what happened after that is um, before we even had children, um, we uh, with the Jabiru, I decided to eventually sell the Jabiru. I probably had done about five or 600 hours on that Jabiru. And mainly because I was keen to get back into the helicopter side of things, but not a certified helicopter. I sort of got a bit of a passion for uncertified because of the difference in cost and I found this little one-seater helicopter a little turbine it's called a mini 500 it's a it's, it's a uh, it's based on the MD 500 helicopter and and what really made me excited was the fact that it had a turbine engine not a piston engine and just that beautiful sound of that turbine starting up is something that um, I really really enjoy and smelling that jet a1 that's burning it's an absolute I love that smell this helicopter was by, uh, was uh, owned by a guy that actually built it in, in East London, of all places. And I'd driven through East London many times and told myself I would hate to live in a place like this. But this particular chap lived out on the East Coast, probably about 30 kilometers out to East London. So when I went to visit him the first time when I saw this helicopter, my mind was blown just to see the beauty, to see what they had out there. It's outside of the controlled area, so they literally don't have to speak to anyone. They just start up the helicopter it's also the, the, the houses in that area, it's not a built-up area, so it's classed as a farm and uh, farm area, so there's no restrictions in terms of flying and all of that. And I just fell in love with this place, and it wasn't long after that. Obviously, I was mangling ways of seeing it was in my uh, – there was a desire for me to sort of – and the family to move to, to, to East London, and I did eventually meet a chap that, that had a company in East London and moved, and moved eventually to East London. And um, yeah, so with this 
helicopter. I've, I've got a, actually a couple of videos that I've got on YouTube where my kids, all they've been wanting to do is fly. So I've, I've even got a couple of videos where they're sitting on my lap in this one-seater helicopter, hovering hovering around. They've all had a chance. So they love flying. They they never got to fly in my, my Jabiru. But I, I did, uh, something that I didn't mention to you before is um, I did buy a share in a, a, a plane called a Chipmunk. It's an old wartime plane. They all got to fly in that. Fortunately, it's a little two-seater. They sit, you sit tandem. I was, uh, I, I started doing a bit of my aerobatics uh, license, but I didn't really enjoy that type of thing. But just to keep my, while I had the helicopter, just to keep my fixing hours going, I had this. I put both that in East London, and uh, the boys they just love flying. So when I eventually got back into paragliding, and and it was a real desire in my heart to get my tandem license, not for any other reasons, but that I could take my family flying. And all of my boys love flying. They, that's all they want to do, especially especially paragliding, either free flying or 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 tandem uh, powered paragliding. In fact, all of them started very young. My 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 old my youngest, which is now six, started flying when he was two years old. I've got a video on YouTube where he's strapped in. And I'm busy taking off his legs or just hanging there because he obviously can't reach the ground. Just a big smile on his face, just absolute in, in awe of, of, of flying. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I have to say I've flown also in tandem and commercially uh, two-year-olds and three-year-olds. And it's strange. A lot of parents would say, what, you take a two-year-old flying? And my friends Darren and Christina, they have two kids of a similar age. And they took their first child flying at nine months old. You know, at nine months old, the first baby was flown as in a tandem. Just, just to kind of say, right, we're taking our child for a flight now at nine, nine months old. So, you know, there is no actual limit. And a two-year-old who loves daddy very much and trusts daddy, why not take a flight with daddy on the, uh, on the plane uh, or on the paraglider for that matter? I just wanted to make another couple of comments on, firstly, the trans sky and the area that you live. For folks who are overseas and listeners who don't uh, quite know the geography of South Africa, our Transkei, and today it's not called the Transkei anymore, we just have our country split into nine provinces where we have 11 official languages. The Transkei is today the Eastern Cape, and the Eastern Cape, uh, of course, is a greater, bigger area than the Transkei. But if I may, the Transkei used to be something like a great big prison area in which the wives and grandmothers and children uh, of the mine workers were basically isolated. They weren't allowed out of that area. They uh, had to be leaving with a reason to go somewhere, much like today's lockdown reasons, um, but having to have a passport with them and an actual letter as to where they were going. So strict were the days of apartheid for, unfortunately, anybody of color that it was obviously uh, a pretty ugly place. And today the Transkei is still much like that. It's it's really the most rural place in South Africa uh, where it comes to, um, let's call it real Africa, if I may. Uh, although now you see much more corrugated iron than you used to see the uh, cute little rondavels with thatch on them in the real kind of African tradition as you as you picture it out in Africa style. So that's the Transkei. Uh, the Robinson 44 is, of course, a, a really nice little um, helicopter that that you were speaking of. My, my younger brother, by chance, also owns such a Robinson's. He has a lot of pleasure with it, and he also has two boys and takes them flying a lot. And uh, you might may know Peter in Grahamstown, much experience and much fun in that sweet little airplane, taking off and flying it and landing it. It's uh, really uh, an absolute delight. Let's move on with our podcast and um, 
speaking of that beautiful area around East London and that that absolutely gobsmacking uh, nature is definitely something for anybody to go and visit. Um, I'll actually be heading your way pretty soon, just as soon as I literally and figuratively can get there. So um, let's talk about your life today. Obviously, life is not just being a chartered accountant. You are also hired by Kempston Hire, the company that you work for, that also by chance um, you found a love of flying with the CEO of that company. Um, lots of things seem to happen by chance, but I don't think there is anything like by chance. I think there's a there's a kind of strong connection of, for example, you and I getting to know each other on this very podcast. There isn't anything. I think there's a grabbing, reaching out and going for any opportunities that present themselves more than luck or chance. It might be a kind of correlation or it might be a coincidence that you and I both love flying, but isn't there maybe a stronger connection? So tell us about your current flying. Now you fly all sorts of other things. You've uh, gone on to um, fly from a Cherokee to a Baron and now a Bell Jet, jet Ranger. Yeah, so I, I had obviously moved to East London uh, uh, with this particular company, with this chap that I met in Durban. I was here probably for three months. We had moved the whole family out here to the East Coast. And this company, a company called Real People, moved their head office to Joburg. And that unfortunately meant that I had to commute to Joburg on a weekly basis. And I could only last about eight months um, when I decided that I needed to, something needed to change. That's when I looked around and met this CEO of this company, uh, that, that um, this company called Kempston. At that time, obviously, there was no interest in, in purchasing any planes or helicopters. It was really just purely on a basis that I'm a chartered accountant that I was employed for for the Kempston Group on, on various matters, um, high-level advising, et cetera, et cetera. But it was within about a year and a half, and I was on a trip with our CEO. I think we were physically driving to Bloemfontein, and I, and I, and I actually said to him, and I had found out I'd, in the back of my mind, always just kept, kept in touch with the local uh, flying community. And I knew that there was a, a little Cherokee available, and my, I mentioned it to my boss, and I said we could actually get to 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 Bloemfontein a lot quicker if we were flying in a little Cherokee. Uh, he he sort of knew that I had a license, and he you know the sort of pricing for that sort of little Cherokee was insignificant in the bigger scheme of things. And the next week we bought that Cherokee. We actually bought a share in that Cherokee. So we didn't buy the whole Cherokee, but we had a good access to it. He actually only flew in that Cherokee once, felt it was too slow and too bumpy, and it was within two, three weeks after that that he bought a Baron. There was someone that was selling their Baron, and that was a massive upgrade. And if anyone, if you know, you talk to any young pilot or any uh, established pilot, they'll tell you that the Baron, the American uh, Beechcraft Baron, uh, we call it Bravo Echo 58, is one of the nicest planes that you can fly. Obviously, it's a twin-engine um, aircraft. Um, at that stage, the Baron had about three or 400 hours. Well, this was about four or five years ago. Those hours are gone. We've redone the engines, redone the whole plane, and it's, we've done another 100 or 200 hours on that plane. So I've probably put about six or 700 hours on, on our company Baron, flying all over the place. So that's been amazing. And about three years ago, uh, our company also owns a couple of farms and we would drive out to our various farms. Obviously you couldn't use the Baron because there are no runways on the farm. And here and there we would hire a, a Robinson 44 to fly there. And one day my, my boss just said, well, let's look at buying our own helicopter. And it just so happened that this beautiful 
Um, it's probably the nicest looking jet ranger, the best and well equipped, most the best equipped jet ranger in South Africa. Came across our path, and yeah, it wasn't long, and we bought this beautiful, beautiful jet ranger, which I have the privilege of flying now, and and I do quite a bit. On average, I do about 100 to 150 hours per year on on both the Baron and on the on our helicopter. So the reason I know that is because we almost have to do maintenance uh, MPIs every year on both our Baron and our and our helicopter, which is done every 100 hours. So so that's 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 part of my life at the moment. Uh, basically flying the Baron and flying the helicopter. I am um, obviously with the love of flying. It was about two, three years actually, just more than three years ago. I was sitting at now because I, I was flying our Jet Ranger. I decided to sell my my own little helicopter. There was no need to continue to build ours. I was already flying a, 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 a um, turbine based helicopter, which is it's obviously the, the be all and end all of flying helicopters. I was sitting at home, it was early April and I just looked at the beautiful weather outside and I just looked at this open area in front of our garden I thought how awesome would it be to get back into paragliding, in particular powered paragliding and just be able to take off from there on a beautiful, beautiful calm afternoon and come and land. And that's when I gave uh, Keith Pickerskill based in Cape Town a call, that was about a two hour call, if anyone knows Keith you would know that that's very very possible. It's funny you say that because uh, I just gave him a call last night and I just asked him one quick question and 40 minutes later I hung up. So, yeah, we're on the same page there. Uh, but uh, listen, please, when you do listen to this, uh, all the best kudos to you. You never talk shit. You always tell the story as it is and or as opinionated as you might be. I think you are a wealth of knowledge, Keith. Yeah. In fact, it wasn't Keith the first man. I remember now, I didn't thank you. There's a guy, Chris West, based in East, in Durban, a friend of mine. He's also um, a friend of my brother-in-law because they do uh, spearfishing and diving together. And he um, he recommended our phone Keith Pickersquill as being the ultimate and the, the the legend when it comes to powered paragliding in, in South Africa. And, and it was definitely the right call because I got I made my way down to 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 Cape Town not too long after that. I um, got all my licenses sorted out. I bought some equipment through Keith, and um, I was registered quite quickly after that. I also used a couple of guys in East London to I mean in in Cape Town to get my my paragliding license sorted out. But with the view of getting my tandem license, it wasn't at that stage really a, a, a desire to get into the training side of things. I didn't think that's something I would have enjoyed. It was more just a, a t- getting the tandem license and really to get my family in the air because I love paragliding so much and I just had this beautiful idea of getting home after work in the afternoon and looking at this beautiful weather and strapping one of my children on, on front in, in front of me and taking off in front of our house. And let me tell you, I've done that many, many times since then. My kids have all probably flown over 50 times each and in front of our house uh, it's just a, a dream come true and that's really how i got back into paragliding uh, your story smacks of one of i want it i will have it i want to fly i will fly and flying as you told me a few minutes ago just before we recorded this podcast um, in the introduction and um, getting to know each other you said to me my real passion is to teach people to fly and you've then described how you just restarted paragliding and you didn't really get into paragliding right in the beginning. It was just a taste, if I may. Now, three years ago, you started and now you're a full-fledged instructor who's already trained 15 people. Tell us about that and tell us about your winch. 
You know, one of the challenges that, that started happening is um, we based here in East London, there's, there's nowhere really to train. People, are, you know, when I, when I flew, uh, spend lots of time taking people, friends and family for flights, people would say, yes, they would really like to get into it. And when you explain to them that there's nothing really in East London or uh, uh, very lim- limited in the Eastern Cape, um, but they would really like to fly. They wouldn't be. They aren't able to go and spend a week in in wilderness or two or three weeks in wilderness. And slowly, my heart just it changed to a certain extent and said, "Look, I re- really would like to help these people to get their licenses." And that's when I decided. And and I knew it was going to be a big sacrifice because uh, you know, obviously, as a when you have a full time job, you know, it's it, to take off twenty twenty five days to go and do your your training with another couple of schools, it's, 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 it's demanding, you know, and, and that's just the, you know, and that, you know, you've got the paragliding and you've got the power paragliding. There's a little bit of cross hope that you can get, but in a sense, you've got to, it's two routes that you have to go. So again, it's a commitment that, that has to be made. My wife was very supportive and, and I made that commitment and it took, it took, it took the time to, to get that. And, and, you know, it's to see the joy on people's faces that you take for a flight Especially that very first time, and I will get onto a bit later on, the, on how I train. I use a winch, but when I pull that individual and they airborne for their very first time, that for me is something that's really, really, really special. And and that's that's what I really enjoy is to see people progress, to see people um, just uh, you know love flying, get into flying, and then start flying and. And when I look back now, the students that I've trained and I, and I follow them a bit and I see how successful they've become and how much flying they're doing and how far they're going, that really makes me excited. Um, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think a very nice measure of how, let's call it a, a pleasure or whatever it is, the person who's finished, how into it they are when they're done, okay? So a lot of people, I've done a a, a course, uh, an XC and competition uh, improvement flying course one week before our competition in Portable in December with Pepe Maleki, who was world champion many times. And him and I offered a course in which people were welcome to sign up for a very inexpensive price and come along and learn a lot about cross country. And one guy came along and he had absolutely no ground handling skills, he, he was in the Olympic team for bobsleighing, so he certainly wasn't bad at being a sportsman. He just clashed with his instructor. Now, if I look at characters like Kerry and Justin Anderson that you and I were chatting about a little earlier, those two are so into flying. They're so hungry for it. They're so keen on improving. And for me, that is a sign that they come from an instruction background, which means that you've done the right thing. Now, I'm not kissing your ass, Alec. I'm just saying what you have given them to take away has encouraged them so much, as opposed to the guy who arrived who couldn't even ground handle, although he was flying a sea, a hot sea glider, he had clashed immediately with the instructor, so he had kind of blocked out everything else. Tell us about your expensive winch, tell us about your training, and tell us about that one meter over the ground yeah, Steph, I, I enjoy what you say there, but what I've done is, and I've actually had this uh, twice in my career in terms of my training careers, uh, you can gauge very quickly when you're dealing with an individual whether they're going to make it at the end or not. And it's all about attitude. And um, I had one particular guy that that I could just, after the first couple of days, I could realize that this guy just wants to do his own thing. And, and I... 
for me, the biggest fear of being an instructor is to have an incident or an accident, even potentially a death that you have to deal with. Uh, I, I think about that and I actually have chills coming up on my arms here because that really is a scary thing. And I believe that that's often a, a, a result of an individual's attitude towards the instructor, potentially towards flying. And and I've told two people already in my short career of flying that I'm not prepared to continue to train them because um, I, I, don't, I don't do it for the money. I do it for my love and passion. And I'm not going to watch and stand around to see someone eventually hurt themselves, potentially even kill themselves. So so for me, it's important to 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 to, to really ignite or, or continue to fire that love that people have for flying, but to direct them in the right path. Um, flying is a very, it's a, a, a mind game as well. You know, you, you know, if there's not, I just believe if there's not that constant element of fear in your heart, every time you take off, that allows you to make, to make sure that you've got all the checks in place and balances in place before you take off. You just arrive without any, um, you know, and you're in the wrong mindset. That's a day where, you, where something potentially could go wrong. So yeah, in terms of my training, um, you know, the, can I make a comment and interrupt you for one second? Uh, I've got a brain big enough to uh, remember your next uh, point. But uh, um, Alec, I think it's very important to be able to say no on many, many levels. And for an instructor to be able to say to a student, no, I'm not going to carry on teaching you, is probably one of the most difficult things that an instructor would have to man up and do, woman up and do for that. Um, and be able to have the balls to say, sorry, but I don't think you should paraglide. And if you are going to paraglide, I, I, I would suggest that you go off, have a good think, and find another instructor. I'm not chasing you away from me, but I can see that this is going to result in more than big tears. Yeah, no, I agree. It's actually Keith that taught me that. I spent, obviously, a lot with Keith, and Keith would, would do exactly that with a student. He taught me that. He's told many students to, to rather look for a different career. And um, yeah, so just getting back to the way I train, we've got a challenge in East London, and that is that the wind is either too strong or the wind is too too weak. They call P, Port Elizabeth the windy city. Um, I think there's a lot of uh, studies that show that East London is even windier than Port Elizabeth. So we deal with a lot of wind, but we do have early mornings that are early mornings, still about nine o'clock in the morning on many, especially summer mornings where the wind is extremely calm or dead. And then the wind picks up extremely quickly. So you've got to be very careful. So it's, it's with that in mind that it's very difficult to train because um, you, you're, you know, you're, 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 you're flying sites, especially your free flying sites, the wind is just often too strong or not strong enough. And we have similar problems like in Durban where they have this bubble that, that gets created and it's just too hot in summer and there's just no wind um, along the coast or in the areas where there's dunes. So there's, there's challenges like that. And that's when my mind started going and I experimented a bit with a normal, normal winches that we, that we deal with. And I came across this winch that really blew my mind uh, based and made, made by a company called um, Miami Paragliding. And I interacted with the owner and eventually ordered this winch. That's an electronic winch. I control it with a remote control. It actually uses a brushless motor. Uh, it's connected up to a lithium battery that runs a 96 volt lithium battery on, on, on a full winch it's got about a one and a half kilometer line of uh, you know the particular very strong line I forget the name now and um, it's um, 
you know it's it's amazing how powerful this this electronic motor is you know that it's a pull in winch so it's static it stays i've connected it to, to a trailer and i can also connect to the back of a vehicle or wherever you um have a steady so with the trailer works quite n- nice on the beach and we use this beach area when there's generally no wind or a very breeze in the morning often we have in summer in particular we have a, a sea breeze a very light sea breeze as well so that that's perfect. You 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 putting the winch right at the at the edge of the the water, and you we fortunate in our area we've got a bit of beach to work with, um, a, a river mouth that's quite wide, and we talk about three or four hundred meters. So really, it's great to be able to after a couple of days of ground handling to be able to um, similar to what you guys would do on a small or a, a very low dune. I would. Control that winch and 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 winch that uh, that student maybe a meter to two meters just off the ground for a couple of meters and that person would experience flight. If he does anything wrong, he is only a meter or two meters off the ground. I'm controlling the the speed of the winch and the height of the winch. Um, we I don't even let the individual or, uh, release. They, I just pull them in and then stop the winch, um, and then they just come in and flare and land. So it's a, it's it's just worked so well for us to be able to train because of our particular circumstances in East London with the with the wind situation we don't have the the areas like the Georges and the and the wildernesses where you've got this beautiful constant um, sea breeze wind you know that that you can train with uh, if I may uh, I'd like to describe to the listeners a little bit what the East London and uh, surrounds area is it's a bunch of rolling hills so basically inland would actually not prove to have many really nice flying sites right close to East London. You actually have to drive quite a way to, to start getting more cliffs and suitable flying sites. So the rolling hills might sound great and might sound like, oh, great, but that's one rolling hill over another. So there are actually very few flat valleys in between, meaning that it's close to impossible to call any of those places flying sites. You'd literally not have a place where a thermal could properly develop or uh, it's just not countryside for paragliding. As you were describing, Kerry on one weekend made 28 flights off that winch where that would be absolutely impossible for anybody to walk up June 15 times unless they're um, as strong and energetic as I was when I was 22. (laughs) Go on. No, you've got it 100% right. Our, our coastline generally faces uh, south, southeast or east. So all of our dunes either face directly east or southeast or south. And that is, as you know, on our side, it's not the prevailing wind. Our prevailing winds are northeast and southwest. So when the east does blow or the southeast blows, it doesn't blow very long or it blows, uh, it's too light. Generally not too strong because uh, it's generally in the change. Often it's a southwest changing to a northeastern. So yes, very limited flying in East London. The winch was the only option if any any trainings was going to be possible, and it's worked. It worked successfully well. And those guys that I had on my heart to to put through training that had asked and begged, they've managed to all come through the process. So it's been great to to use the winch successfully to get these guys through the to the ranks. Obviously, we don't have the sites to be able to do high flying and thermal flying. So I either go with them to the wilderness and Sedgefield areas or I, or I have relationships with uh, flying schools in those areas where I send my students. And being on the beach and, and dealing with a lot of wind often, one thing that I can tell you about my students is they know how to ground handle because we do a lot of ground handling. And I've always 
heard comments uh, when um, these individuals arrive at these other schools uh, to do their high flights that their ground handling is impeccable. So I, 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 I really believe in ground handling and, and it, it's proven for my students. And I'm sure most people will agree that, that it's key to a very long and successful career in paragliding. Well, I have to completely agree with you there, and I can't uh, disagree anything you've said with regards to the ground handling and learning how to uh, learn the basic things like the stall point on your glider and all that kind of thing. The uh, most important thing that's taken me through my flying career without ever having an accident is learning to have impeccable ground handling, really, really good control of your paraglider, as opposed to the paraglider throwing you around all over the takeoff. And every single time you take off, as we see many, many um, uh, experienced paraglider pilots, every single takeoff, you can see that they're uh, um, that they're really lucky that they got off the ground. That's that's an awful thing to watch, in my opinion. Uh, you you were speaking of Mazepa Bay. That is the place where you are doing most of your winching there. You seem to have a great big area around there. You have a brilliant YouTube channel. Any of the listeners who haven't um, gone to have a look at uh, Alex Booth's uh, channel will certainly be linking it on the uh, the written part underneath this podcast. So people can go and have a little click and have a look at these fantastic, fantastic, fantastic things. You look like you were about to um, fill in some other gaps there. With that. Yeah, I just think uh, what what we found is um, uh, what works quite well for us is we we use a site like Mazepa Bay. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful it's a it's a beautiful area in the Transcar. That's about two and a half hours drive from East London. It's actually got a runway on the hill, and either side of the runway faces into the prevailing wind of northeast and southwest. And in fact, on the northeast side, it's got a slope all the way down to the beach. And that is actually on the northeast. If it's not too strong, you can actually paraglide that area. And so it's a it's a great area to 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 teach paragliding. It's not a massive hill, so when we do our paragliding there, we only allow three students at a time in the air just to control because of the the space that we have over there. But um, you know, it's a type of area where you can go for a weekend and a person like, um, like Kerry that came along for one particular weekend then with no flights, walked away with 28 flights after a weekend. It's a great site for us and we go there quite often. Only having gotten back into paragliding three years ago and to have had uh, 15 uh, students already successfully licensed uh, sounds like a hell of an accomplishment. Lots and lots of questions to still ask you, but uh, some of the ones that come to mind are, what are you keen on flying next? What is the most exciting thing to fly? What should people know about flying? And also about some tips that you'd like to give. Obviously, uh, I still fly our helicopter and our, and our, uh, our Baron quite a bit. And I've recently, uh, it was about two years ago, a year and a half ago, I also got my game capture license on our helicopter. And unfortunately, the game industry in, this, in, in, in South Africa has taken a bit of a dive. But I've really enjoyed, I've done a couple of game captures. Um, a couple of dart, a, a bit of darting out of the. Well, I've done about four or five sessions of darting out of the the helicopter. I've I really enjoy that. Um, I'm busy building up to a commercial license on the. I'm just I've got to write the exams and that on on both the helicopter and the plane, because there's certain things on the helicopter I would really like to do. Uh, I'd like to get my winch rating on the helicopter. Our, our helicopter has got a winch, but you can only have that if you have a have a, a, a commercial license. Um, uh, looking forward to that and ultimately i'd also <clears throat> want to get a, a get and i'm also working towards my instrument rating i just think from a safety point of view whenever there have been times where we've had to go through a bit of dodgy weather and having a, a, a instrument rating just will seal the deal for me when it comes to flying 
So that's what I'm working to. If I can give any youngster advice, I mean, it's so difficult at the moment, Steph. You know, we've we've got a we're living in strange times. You know, we've got uh, you know, if it comes to when it comes to the commercial side, I, I think it's probably not a career that I would suggest right now because I think there are going to be thousands of pilots that are going to be uh, without work, and it's an industry that it's going to take a long time to get up and running. But on the paragliding side, if there's someone that has that sort of desire. You know, it's it's something that you can't explain. Um, and even in the pure form of paragliding, there's I must say there's if if having been and, and having done so many forms of flying, I can tell you that out of all that flying, there's nothing, nothing that can beat paragliding. The pure paragliding when you have no noise, you're in the air, you're just um, experiencing those thermals, you're experiencing those that lift, and that is for me still the ultimate of flying. Nothing, nothing. I mean, having flown so many and being exposed to so much, even when it comes to powered paragliding. Powered paragliding, I even see that more in the area of, of having a fixed wing license because there's so many similarities and, and the noise and the radio calls and the you know the, the, the all that goes with powered paragliding. But the free paragliding is there's something about that and and um, I've even got some helicopter pilots that are that are looking to do their paragliding licenses because there's something different about paragliding it's, it's a passion and uh, you know Steph there's people I speak to that paraglide that are not even interested in getting their para, powered paragliding license because what they enjoy is paragliding and I can understand that and I don't even try and convince them because there's something about paragliding and so for those yeah for the, if there's anyone out there that's that wants to get into this pure form of flying. It's really the purest form of flying in my mind. It's 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 something beautiful. It's safe, and it's so enjoyable. It, it's it's incredible, Steph. Oh, I couldn't 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 agree with me more. You've been turning me on so much when you've been talking about how pure and beautiful paragliding is, and you've you've uh, given me a flashback to our competition in December when a full bar on my Enzo three between thermals and then hitting a thermal and just cranking it up there and moving on to the next one. There's very very little that I can uh, um, uh, describe that would would fit such a bull like that. It's, it's so yeah. nice. And I have to agree with you, Steph. Yeah, paragliding is is it, it, it is a pure form of flying. Uh, it's it's something that it's that it's difficult to do, explain to someone. And and I must be honest, it, it, you know, I enjoy taking someone on a paragliding tandem more than taking someone on a, a powered paragliding tandem. Um, mm -hmm. it, 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 just the excitement of of putting someone in the air and having to be able to being able to talk to them without through the radio systems and all of that. There's something special about that. Oh, definitely, definitely. If we don't have too much more, I think we can slowly wrap this up. Are there any any last points or things that you'd like to bring up or any positive message for the world out there that you'd like to wrap this podcast with? Yeah, Steph, I think one thing that, that I've, I've realized is that when it comes to flying and, all, and me being involved in all kinds of flying, I think what I just believe in my heart is that you've always got to have, uh, there's got to, for me, there's got to be an element of fear. When I, and the fear I'm talking about is an element of fear that causes you to take a step back every time you fly and, and realize that what you're doing is still dangerous. And if you don't follow the procedures and you don't do the checks, the results can be, can be catastrophic. So I, I live with that. I, every time I fly, every, every time, whether it be paragliding, uh, whether it be 
in a in a chopper or in a, in a fixed ring, I force myself to make to even though it's I've done it so many times. I force myself to make to do all the checks, the necessary checks, because it's so important. And and it's just the encouragement I want to leave is that don't 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 walk away from that. It, it's still a dangerous sport. When I say dangerous, it can be dangerous if if you don't follow those basic steps. It, you know, sometimes we think we we are so good and we've done it so many times we arrive there, but for that moment you're going to forget something, and 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 potentially something could go wrong. And I just, if I could leave you with anything, is to say don't ever walk away from those little basics that we've learned over the years. Um, I, I live by those basics because it's kept me safe all these years. I've got a 25, 20, 22, 23 year accident free um, history, and maybe there's, I mean, there's been few bumps and bruises here but overall an accident-free career and it's because I've made certain and I'm not the type of person that does it normally Steph I'm not the typical accountant I call myself more a creative accountant but when it comes to flying I'm very specific and I try and make sure that I tick all the boxes and I've made mistakes I've made many mistakes but fortunately you know I've, I've been fortunate not to it, it never being something massive but you know obviously it's all about those small checks and making sure that all those things balance, just like in accounting. Ah, <laughs> nice analogy. <laughs> that perfectly. <laughs> the the story of accidents happen so quickly. Um, that very very fine line between being too gung ho and being too afraid. Uh, I think it's very pertinent here. We can again uh, speak of our friend Tristan Burrell, an extremely safe guy who, unfortunately met his end with one very, very small uh, mistake. And those mistakes can happen. And everything counts. So putting the harness over your shoulders, immediately closing your leg straps, uh, looking at the weather and not taking off until you are quite sure that you want to be in the air because there's always that adage of being in the air and not wanting to be there and all that kind of thing. So please, folks, be safe. Enjoy, your, enjoy our fantastic sport, but do it in the right and safe way. The, the small little incidents that I've had, I can honestly tell you, before those small incidents, there was something that told me not to fly that day, and I decided to fly, and I had an incident. And I'm saying they were small, I was lucky, but I, I just feel when, when it doesn't feel right, rather not do it when it comes to flying, rather walk away, rather live another day where you can fly than to take that chance. Um, it's just something that's stuck with me, and, and since I've, I've tried to live by that, it's made a huge difference. Thank you very much, uh, Alec. Those are very, very wise words, and they are words that I'm hearing more and more echo echoed by real professionals in our sport. Uh, the uh, not only old pilots, but the old and bold pilots who have been in the sport for very long and who I've been podcasting have been very much echoing that same theme. So, guys, if in doubt, don't do it. Just rather don't do it. You don't have to be a sheep. You don't have to be special. You don't have to show off. You don't have to be a big man. You don't have to post it on Facebook. Uh, you can actually just pack the equipment away and walk away. Then you'll be flying another day. Absolutely. No, excellent. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Cheers, mate. Equal, Steve.